0: This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised controlled trial. It's
1: actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful.
2: Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SDR 107.3.
3: Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Ellen Lee Beater. Today on the program, an exploration of palliative care for people with intellectual disabilities and how understanding the cues of your baby is crucial for developing a
4: relationship. For me, it's about looking at developing a good relationship between you and your baby because it's the baby's first love affair.
3: As one of the most common, costly and potentially fatal conditions, heart failure is a massive health concern. More than 350,000 Australians suffer from heart failure, with 30,000 new cases diagnosed each year. A new study called the New South Wales Heart Failure Snapshot assessed 24 hospitals across the state. And although huge advances have been made in the world of heart care, the study found proper diagnosis and treatment is falling short. Philip Newton is the Associate Dean of Research in the Faculty of Health at UTS. Philip was part of the study and said heart failure is hard to diagnose because it's a syndrome, not a single disease. He spoke with Jake Morecambe.
2: So heart failure is primarily considered a condition of the elderly. The majority of people with heart failure will be kind of 65 plus. You will get people who have had congenital heart disease since birth, so problems with the heart since they were born. And then you'll get people in their 30s and 40s who have had some sort of injury to their heart, you know, after a massive infarct, so heart attack. But primarily it's people who are much older than that. And so in this study you looked at this across a New South Wales and ACT landscape. So we had 24 hospitals across New South Wales in the ACT and these were combination of the big hospitals in Sydney, so the big tertiary referral hospitals, but we also had a number of smaller rural hospitals as well. So it was trying to get a picture of heart failure across the state.
5: Something that I found interesting is that I would have thought heart failure as a health issue would be quite high up on the agenda there, but in fact this is the first snapshot ever of heart failure patients in New South Wales and the ACT and there isn't currently a national snapshot study into this. So why has it taken so long for
2: something like this to happen? So one of the problems with heart failure is it's not a single disease. It's actually considered to be a syndrome because it's a number of different processes within the body that kind of all get made up to get a diagnosis of heart failure. And one of the problems is people cannot agree on actually what heart failure is. So when you're looking at trying to get national statistics, if you can't even tell people with a clear definition of what it is. It makes it really tricky. And so while lots of people over you know the last 20 or 30 years have been wanting to do a study like this, it's been really challenging because they can't agree on what heart failure exactly is. And so when we were designing the snapshot study, we decided to take a more pragmatic approach. We really wanted to do to have a real-world picture rather than kind of a textbook definition of heart failure or guideline based definition we decided really to go for a broader definition a real world picture as we called it. So essentially if it looked like heart failure it was being called heart failure and got treated as heart failure they got included in the snapshot. Now to try to then determine if it was actually heart failure each of the hospitals we had had an on-site cardiologist um, and then they would go back and review the cases afterwards and determine whether it was actually heart failure or not. Is it hard to determine if it was heart
5: failure or something else because a lot of these patients had multiple disorders at the same time, so differentiating what it is that they have and what they need treatment for?
2: Yeah. So that's one of the problems that I talked about earlier in terms of the definition of heart failure and what exactly it is because these patients don't just have heart failure. They have lots of what we would call comorbidities. So other conditions that can have very similar signs and symptoms to heart failure. Um, so you're right, it, it can be really challenging to, to say whether it was just heart failure that was the cause or whether it was something else. And, but that's why we had um, the cardiologist make the determination afterwards as to whether it was heart failure or not.
5: Is this the big reason also in the study as to why there was under use of a lot of the prescription medications that the heart failure patients, they, they wouldn't be taking them. So was this because they were trying to determine what it was or was it because the patients weren't taking the medications when they needed them?
2: Uh, so there's a couple of questions in there. In terms of the patients taking the medications, it was about 20% of the patients' cause for the admission, so the reason why they came into hospital was because of something to do with their medications. Either they, weren't, they hadn't been taking them and then they, their condition got worse or they had perhaps been taking too much of the wrong medication. So some, some sort of medication error um, from the patient's perspective. In terms of under use of um, evidence-based therapy in heart failure, there's really only good evidence um, that these drugs work in about half the population. So there's two broad types of heart failure. One where the problem is it's a pumping issue so the heart's not pumping properly. The other one is where it's a filling issue. And so for people with heart failure where it's an issue with the pumping, there's good evidence around what drugs they should be using and should be on. For the ones where it's a filling issue, there's actually no good evidence that anything works particularly well in these um, particular patients. So when we're talking about underutilisation of evidence-based therapies, we're talking about in the group where there was an issue with their pumping of the heart. And there were a number of... Different drug classes; these patients should be on according to the guidelines. And it was really, it was about sixty percent of the patients, fifty to sixty percent across those different classes, were actually on those drugs. Now, the problem with the study is we can't necessarily know the reason why because we didn't ask perhaps the right questions in for that specific bit of information. Um, But looking at the data and comparing our data to other studies across Europe and the US, in particular, it would certainly seem that they've been underutilized. And so another issue or something that I feel is kind of across
5: hospitals in general is, I guess, inter-hospital variation length of stay. And so that meaning how long the patients should be staying in hospitalised care or when they're able to leave. So was this something that you came across in this study as an
2: issue? Yeah. So across the 24 sites, the length of stay varied on average, for each of the patients at the tick hospital, between three days and twelve days. So quite a big difference across the different hospitals. Um, now the hospitals that were in the study, as I said, they was some of them were small rural hospitals, and then you had the large hospitals in Sydney. And so it's a little bit hard. You've got to be a little bit careful in terms of looking at variation in stay because there can be differences in um, how sick the patients are and resources available as well. From the data, it doesn't look like it's just related to the size of the hospital. Um, so it doesn't look like that's the major contributor. So obviously the bigger hospitals are more likely to get the sicker patients or a higher proportion of really sick patients who may be more complicated and therefore need to be in hospital longer. But that doesn't look like by itself is um, a major contributing reason. And you've aggregated
5: this information now and sitting as the first snapshot study that's taken place in New South Wales and the ACT. Also nationally, does that give momentum for more studies to take place to look into this, into heart failure in particular? Yeah, so
2: we're um, really wanting to replicate this study across Australia and New Zealand to do a bi-national snapshot. Um, There's a national, well, bi-national working party that's really trying to design that study, and we're hoping to run that in the next couple of years, but it's going to be dependent on us being able to fund the study you know, these are complex patients. And so while there's lots of guidelines out there, those guidelines don't always help um, the individual clinician treat these complex patients because they're not always the same patients that the evidence is based on. But I think what it has shown is that there are areas that could be improved um, in the heart failure management And we're certainly, there's been a a bit of interest in this study and so we're really looking to work with, you know, the different cardiac bodies and government to help improve the outcomes for people with heart failure.
3: Philip Newton, Associate Dean of Research in the Faculty of Health, speaking to Jake Morecambe.
4: Think Health, on to SER 107.3.
3: You're listening to Think Health. Ellen Lee-Beta with you. For people with an intellectual disability, death can be a daunting prospect. How do you explain what death is? That it's an inevitability that can happen to anyone, including you. It's also difficult for clinicians working in palliative care to understand the needs of people with intellectual disabilities at the end of life, as there are many communication barriers. the first funeral you went to? Do you remember when you understood what death was? Do you remember when you worked out that you too would one day die? Now imagine if you knew none of this until it was your time to go. Historically, we as a society have sheltered people with an intellectual disability from knowing about death thinking that it may cause distress when they find out. It creates a problem when suddenly you are dealing with someone who has a terminal condition and no concept of death.
6: I think that's where our historical avoidance of this topic has met with the pointy end of exactly that difficulty because it is the case that it's a little bit of too, little, too late. If a person has been diagnosed with a palliative condition, that is the absolute worst time that you want to be start t- teaching these concepts of A, what death is, um, B, the, expe- you know, the expectations around your palliative care, and that you are going to die. All of those sorts of things need to be learned well prior to that terrible time when a palliative diagnosis is given.
3: For people without an intellectual disability, we probably remember our first funeral but maybe don't remember when we understood death and our own mortality. It's just something that we pick up. Michelle Weiss likes to call it the tapestry of understanding about death.
6: Well, I guess it's just about comparing to how perhaps you and I learnt about dying death. So, you know, I will say, for example, I learnt about it when, you know, pets on the farm died, when extended family died, you know, grandparents and so on. And then as we get older, we might be involved in the care of people who die. And then as we, of course, get older too, we we see it on television programs, on movies. We might understand it from biology classes at university, a whole range of places that the general community gradually builds a tapestry of understanding about dying and death.
3: Michelle is a research associate and lecturer at the University of Sydney. She's been researching how much people with an intellectual disability understand about death.
6: There are parts of death that people with intellectual disability understand less than the rest of the community. And that's largely associated with the learning difficulties that are associated with the disability itself.
3: The hardest thing for people with an intellectual disability is to grasp that they will die.
6: So sometimes if you ask the question of, do you understand that all people die, then that might be understood. But when you ask the question of, do you understand that one day you too will die? There are many people who don't understand that that actually happens to themselves. That when we say that the rule applies to everybody, we actually do mean absolutely everybody.
3: But the best way to overcome this is exposure to death over an extended
6: period of time. Our, Our best recommendation is that you start early. All the rest of us learn about dying and death from when we're very young and all the way through life. And the rules are no different. People with intellectual disability learn best if they're taught in the natural conditions in which an event occurs and that applies to dying and death. So it means attending grandma's funeral when you're five years old, driving through a cemetery and someone explaining to you the difference between cremation and burial. It also means that you might need, because you have a disability, repeated opportunities to learn. So we know best that Um, People with disability learn better in natural conditions if they have repeated opportunities. We use concrete language. So when we talk about dying and death, we use those words. We don't use all the metaphors that are associated with it, like kicking the bucket and six feet under and all of those things. So it's great if a person with a
3: disability has an understanding of death once there is a need to access palliative care, because here is where another challenge begins, understanding the needs of the patient.
0: The needs uh, of people with intellectual disability are really no different from, from anybody else with regard to palliative care by and large. There are just a, sort of a few, a few um, issues that set them apart.
3: Dr Tim Luckett is a Senior Research Fellow in the Faculty of Health at UTS. Before we go any further, what exactly are we talking about when we say intellectual disabilities?
0: So a good example uh, would be people with Down syndrome. People on the autistic spectrum um, uh, would be perhaps two of the more frequently encountered uh, intellectual disabilities. But there are a range of others uh, making up between 1 and 3% of the general population.
3: 1 to 3% of the population is quite small. So it's no surprise that clinicians are often unsure of how to treat people with an intellectual disability.
0: Because people with intellectual disability are in a fairly small minority, many health professionals involved in providing palliative care uh, don't have much exposure and certainly um, very often don't have much training in how to communicate with people with intellectual disability in general, never mind with specific intellectual disabilities such as uh, people on the autistic spectrum. So there's definitely a need there for more training um, in how to communicate, communicate um, around death and dying in ways that people will understand.
3: Relationships between palliative care staff are especially important because you are dealing with people who are in a lot of pain yet can't communicate that to staff.
0: People with intellectual disability may have a reduced ability to communicate um, how they're feeling and their needs, which includes symptom management, not just pain, but a range of symptoms. Um, Fortunately, there are some tools um, to help health professionals. There's a purpose-built disability distress assessment tool, uh, which works um, based on facial expression, behaviours, and so forth, where the person is not able to verbally communicate.
3: And it goes both ways. Palliative care staff may not know about disability in the same way disability workers don't understand palliative care. Michelle Weiss again.
6: And we've got a little bit of, I guess, early evidence, and this is not definitive as yet, of the possibility that we've got disability care workers who know a lot about caring for people with intellectual disability but not very much about palliative care And then we've got the palliative care health professional sector who know a lot about palliative care but might not know a lot about intellectual disability.
3: But on the whole, both services work well together. Jane Phillips is the Director of the Centre for Cardiovascular and Chronic Care and a Professor of Palliative Nursing at UTS.
1: You're not going to meet a lot of palliative care clinicians who've got intellectual disability experience. But I think what you need to appreciate is that Palliative care is actually about partnering with the patient or the person's usual healthcare team and people with intellectual disabilities have often, have had these disabilities for, often for life and have had a range of support people around them including their own family members, care workers, disability support workers, their general practitioner, a whole range of other specialists and it's not palliative care's role to come in and take over, but rather to partner with the person with intellectual disability usual care team to optimise their symptom management.
3: Jane says that it's not just about helping the individual with a terminal illness, but also helping someone with an intellectual disability cope if their carer is going to die.
1: When I was a clinical nurse consultant working in one of my Patients, as I was looking after, had cared for her son. He had a profound intellectual disability and she had cared for him her entire life and she was now a woman in her late 70s who was dying. And so her son had actually lived with her for his entire life. You know, my role as a palliative care nurse was really to support her as she worked with his care team to ensure that he was appropriately placed and his housing needs were attended to well before she actually died.
3: Jane says it's important that anyone who works in this area should be well informed about the possible palliative care services available and often it's the GP who is well placed to do this.
1: You know sometimes those workers may not be really of the full gamut of services that would be available more from the health perspective and particularly palliative care. But that's obviously where, you know, having the person having access to a well-informed GP who's got a good understanding of the local networks and the local palliative care team is actually really able to link that person up to ensure that they get the support they need
3: Death
6: doesn't discriminate, and talking about it helps everyone. It doesn't matter who the person is and whether they have an intellectual disability or they don't, I guess I'd just like to encourage people to to talk about it, to start to break down the barriers of this taboo topic. Um, So that would be my encouragement to everyone.
2: To a CR
3: 107.3. from the moment your baby is born they're ready to communicate with you their movements their cries their smiles every action your baby makes has meaning they're also very good at telling you what they like and what they don't like understanding your baby's cues may be overwhelming at first but it is crucial to developing a strong and healthy relationship Catherine Fowler is the Professor for the Tresillian Chair in Child and Family Health at UTS. She spoke with Jake Morecambe about identifying the needs of your baby and how exactly the parent-infant attachment begins.
4: I mean, I think the term attachment is really overused. And infant attachment, it's it's about developing a secure relationship with the person that is going to provide you with the most care. And that endures through your lifetime and it's the the infant attaching to the parent.
5: So what sort of practices or communications are we talking about in this instance where this attachment is initially developed?
4: Yeah, you know, a lot of parents just do it naturally. It's about being present and it's about being responsive and sensitive to the infant's needs and being able to keep the infant in the parent's mind, to think about what it might feel like for the infant. You know, if an infant is distressed, what does that feel like for the infant? Rather than just thinking, oh, it's difficult and I don't like hearing the crying and, and, you know, the the infant's trying to get at me.
5: How does this attachment change over that period of infancy? Because, like you were saying there, it's a number of different things which take place over that time. You know, it's responding to whether the baby's crying, even whether they're smiling and developing that attachment. In those formative years, how does that attachment evolve
4: Well, it, it just evolves naturally, and, and whether it's strong or whether it's a bit more disconnected or, or insecure. But I, I, my preference is not to talk about attachment with parents. I don't think that it, it achieves very much because it's just really theoretical words and language. And for me, it's about looking at developing a good relationship between you and your baby. And if you focus on the relationship, because it's the baby's first love affair, Mm. With their parent, and if you focus on that rather than thinking on, you know, oh, is this a secure attachment or or an insecure attachment, which is really complicated work, and and I certainly would never label someone a parent as having a, a secure attachment, their infant having a secure attachment or an insecure attachment. You really have to be very skilled at judging those attachments, and you can't do that, you know, until into the first year of the child's life, anyway. For parents, it's about thinking about the relationship and what a good relationship is. And, you know, there are are things that parents can do, you know, like looking at the infant in their eyes being present if a baby cries you know really responding fairly quickly to the baby taking the time to talk to the baby we know that talking to a baby really is very powerful and really helps them develop their language skills which then helps them you know transition to school so those sorts of things for me are much more important than worrying about attachment
5: so it's about ensuring or creating that emotional and Physical connection between the parent and the child
4: absolutely and and it 's often really hard for parents because parents you know they 're doing something that 's very new they 're often quite anxious about the baby because it 's a huge responsibility having a baby um, and often babies don 't respond the way that parents think they 're going to respond or way, the way they 've been told that babies Respond, you know, from the media, so their expectations are a bit skewed compared to what's going to happen with the baby.
5: And um, one of those situations might be where the parent would see the child being overly um, reliant on the parent or overly attached. What, what, what are those situations like, and how does the parent normally try to deal with those situations?
4: Yeah, you know, in the first year of life, particularly, I worry when people. Are concerned about the baby being overly attached i mean that's what parents are there for in the first year of life the parents act as the baby's regulation system so the baby looks to the parent to their face to see that they're safe so, you know, if they're in a crowded shopping centre, it's really important, if possible, that the baby can see the parent's face. So, you know, for instance, you would turn the baby around in a pouch rather than having it out, facing outwards. So the baby can see the parent, the parent can reassure the, the baby. You know, having it on their back is fine as well because the baby has a sense of being able to to connect with the parent where when they're facing outwards, they can't do that and babies are very sophisticated both learners but also communicators babies have lots of cues that they give parents and we know that parents that are seem to be sort of natural parents and and manage parenting fairly easily often are tuning in to the subtle engagement and disengagement cues of a baby and so they get in early before a baby has to accelerate to a potent disengagement cue like crying babies come with these cues and they as I said they're subtle and there's potent ones and their engagement cues which says I want to play come and be with me and so that's very obvious things like smiling and reaching out for the parent. They're really potent um, engagement cues. There are a whole lot less engagement cues than disengagement cues. As parents, we're much smarter at picking up the engagement cues, mm. the smiles, than we are at the disengagement cues. So there's subtle and there's potent disengagement cues. So a cry is a really potent disengagement cue, looking, you know, turning your head right around and, and so that you're not looking Looking at the parent that's a disengagement cue spitting up vomiting hiccuping those are all disengagement cues and you know parents need to respond to them we call them a sign of distress disengagement cue and it's it's really about saying i, I just want a moment give me a moment, or also saying, I'm over that, I'm really tired, just put me down and I want to go to bed. Then it becomes a bit more complicated because with feeding and sleeping, you often have a, particularly with feeding, you have a clustering of cues of both engagement and disengagement cues. So you have to read the context and think, well, it's been four hours since I gave a breastfeed, so this is probably telling me that my baby is needing some help and needing to be
5: fed now. And talking about feeding and sleeping in particular, I guess when it comes to the parent trying to help the child and then also have them perhaps sleep in another room is when it might become an issue. And so there's a number of different things can happen or that the parent can do different methods or such. And there's one that where there's a lot of talk about called parental presence. Yes. So can you just explain a little more about what that is and and how it's used in practice?
4: In the early months of having a baby and even you know up to 12 months absolutely and often in toddlerhood, it's absolutely fine for the baby to sleep in the the parents room you know and lots of parents find that that's and culturally that's absolutely fine but if the parents decide it's time to get the child into their own room. And, you know, even in, in when they're sharing the room, often children don't want to go down to sleep mm. because the parents are not <laughs> there. So it's it's about being there. And it's about, you know, having a physical contact with the baby, your hand on the baby a vocal contact with the baby so that you know you're making soothing sounds to the baby you can do that and then gradually withdraw atrocilin sleeping and set and feeding issues are the main reason why parents come in i have concerns about lots of sort of prescriptive ways of doing things. I think we have to read the baby and certainly Tresillion, that's the shift that we're trying to we're getting the nurses and, and the nurses are doing that, is about educating the parents about the cues of the baby and what's the baby saying to you. It's also about thinking about the child's state of consciousness. And there are six states that we all have and so you know the the baby is is really deeply asleep which is a non-rem state there's no movement of their eyes then there's a rem state which is rapid eye movement and then there's drowsiness and then there's quiet alert and then there's active alert a baby when they're in the really deep deep sleep of non-rem eye movement sleep a good way to think about that is if you've ever taken a toddler in a car and they've fallen asleep and you've picked them out of the car and they're often really deeply asleep and you can move them into their cot without anything. You could turn them upside down and (laughs) and they wouldn't wake up. You know, they're just so deeply asleep. They're like a rag doll. That's a non-REM sleep. Rapid eye movement sleep is when they are very lightly asleep and it's just a part of the cycle that, and we go through this as well we as adults often put quite a few sleep cycles together and we, we actually wake up in the middle of the night and we don't even know we have done that and we fall back to sleep and so we have you know a whole lot of sleep cycles and our sleep cycles are about 90 minutes And babies, you know, might do one or two cycles or only one cycle during the day when they're put down for their sleep periods and then they wake up. And as they get older, there's more consolidation so they learn to put more Mm. sleep cycles together. That's Catherine Fowler from UTS
3: speaking there with Jake Morecambe. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out about anything you heard today, you can visit us at 2SER.com forward slash Think You can also tweet us at 2SER. Please remember that journalists are not doctors. If this show has made you ask questions, which is great, go and see your GP. Think Health is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney, Faculty of Health. And if you've liked what you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Rate and review us on iTunes.